Ochoa. I have a question for you today. We're not going to do a double question. I'm not going to do the question next week as like I did two weeks ago, okay? But my question for you is, what is a sign that you see? Just one. Just one. Don't overdo it. What's one sign that you see in your classroom when you know kids are actually reading? What is that? What is that sign that you look for? Just just one. Just one. I look up from the book that I'm reading. And everybody is looking at their book and they're engrossed in it. And you don't hear anything. And then every once in a while you hear a page turn. But it turns at the right rate of what's expected for a seventh grader. And they're all just involved. Somebody walks into the room like a principal and nobody looks up. That's when you know they're all really reading. And it really looks almost the same when they're playing video games. you got to kind of be careful <laughs> and make sure they're not playing video games. Other than that, because that looks the same too. Because they're really engrossed into that. But before the days of uh, computers and things like that, where it was really a, a hard book in their hands, it was really cool. That was probably one of my most exciting moments is when the class was completely quiet and everybody is reading. I'll give you an example. One time uh, I was reading because I really feel like you got to model that, but I don't do that all the time. It's not a hundred percent, but, and this was uh, several years back, maybe a few, like 12, but anyway, so I, I had, uh, well, I was really into the Nancy Atwell you know, I'd just gotten her books, just read them. I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was encompassing everything she did, and my my husband even made her easel from her plans that she put in one of her books. So, I mean, we were Nancy Atwell in it. I had, I had, um, it was, I we didn't have computers in the classroom other than we had stations. So that wasn't you're not going to read off of a computer. So everybody had to have books. But anyway, we had, um, uh, I guess it was uh, pillows and all kinds of stuff that kids, and so I had this big, huge bucket where the pillows would go uh, when we had reading time, and then when we they would get them out. Well, anyway, we're all reading, and I read for, you know, I kind of time myself. I read for a little bit, and then I get up when everybody's in that moment in their, in their zone, and they're all reading and nobody's looking up. When you get up, they don't look up. And I look up and I was being appraised. <laughs> I had no idea. Nobody. And then this kid had climbed into that container and nobody saw him. All of a sudden he pops his head up. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm about to be in trouble. But you know what really happened is uh, uh, this particular principal understood and she was excited about all the kids that were reading because it was a I think a regular class and everybody was reading and uh so anyway I had a good evaluation but at the time I was really nervous because that kid popped his head up out of the because he had all gotten all down in there and he was reading and anyway it was kind of funny but she had been in there for at least 10 minutes before we were reading uh, at that time I would usually read um i we read like maybe five or 10 minutes every day, but then I would take one time out of the whole day and we would read for at least 30 minutes, uh, one, at least one day a week we would read because I really feel like kids need to, have, they don't get in that zone in five or 10 minutes. They get in that zone, 
you know, they have to settle down and all that stuff. And they get into that zone probably in about 15 minutes. And then you can get a good 20 minutes out of them after that. Yeah, a lot of it. That reading zone. That's Nancy Atwell right there. But I, oh, I, think, yeah. I think that's a fancy, fancy way to start this podcast. Welcome to Craft the Draft. Today, ladies and gentlemen, last week we talked about writing, the writing culture, everything. That's my son yelling in the background. He's having a blast. But <laughs> the writing culture and what to do uh, and how to kind of create that writing culture and how to think about it. Today, we're going to take the reading side, talk about the reading culture. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about writing as well because we're both just so addicted to it. But going into that, and we're going to see where this conversation goes. So welcome to Craft and Draft with Pam Ochoa and Jake Chastain. All right, I have to start off, though, um, going into what you said about uh, the the, the feeling of – well, actually, let me take a step back. I want to talk about first this time of reading with students because this is hotly debated, right? Mm -hmm. When I asked um, both Penny Kittle and Donalyn Miller – Kind of, they didn't scoff, but they were like, well, there's other things to be doing while they're reading. And what they mean by that is like conferring with students and stuff like that. Um, And so I had kind of see, like I had asked them those questions. And then when they answered that way, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, totally. I don't do that. And then they were, (laughs) when I heard Laura Robb speak at ILA, she was talking about how that modeling is super powerful. So I think it's really up to kind of for teachers to decide, but um, I want to know like when you're, when kids are reading in your class and you're reading, what, what value do you see just from that perspective? What value do you get from reading along with your kids? Well, first of all, I want to establish this community idea that we're all in it together. And if I don't, if I'm not reading, then that already takes me out of their community. It makes me a teacher only. I want to be a a facilitator, but I want to lead by example to the best of my ability. And so I'll pick up a book. My problem is, as my personal problem, which I already told you, don't ask me about books because I used to be really good. My problem is I'll start a book and then I'll put it down. I'll start another one. I'll put it down. So I have like, I might start in the middle of a book. I said, there's nothing about me reading the children's literature that's as caught co- our student literature that's as common as it used to be. Cause I'm more comfortable, honestly, reading a, an, um, professional book. So sometimes I'll just pick up a professional book. I have about three or four on my desk and I will pick up those professional books and read. And, uh, but anyway, so, so, but I like to read with them and maybe talk a little bit about what we were reading and things like that. So I'll read and then I'll get up. So I don't read almost the entire time. I kind of get them involved. And then after that, that's when I start kind of walking around, double checking, Seeing how many pages, you know, I just kind of look up and and um, glean some information from what I'm seeing, like that kid watching idea. Mm-hmm. But the kids get used to it, and uh, sometimes I might pull a student up and have them read to me. I used mm. to do that some, but I don't do it all the time because I don't want to interrupt their reading. Yeah. Well, and that's the point that Laura Robb said where, and that, that has really stuck with me. I think I mentioned it on the podcast before, but the, when she was just talking about, you know, when you interrupt a child's reading, you know, that's their time to read and you're interrupting it. And I was just like, wow, that's, I mean, it's true. It's just something that, um, 
You know, I don't remember if I had her. I think I had her on the podcast before I saw her speak at ILA. Um, but I'd be that's something that that stuck with me. So I'd be willing to like kind of pick her brain about that at some point. But I I want to touch on this idea of reading professional development books during reading time. So I do the same thing, right? I love. Um, I read everything. Like I jump around books all the time. Sometimes it takes oh, me if okay. I'm reading if if I'm reading a long book. Um, it'll take me a while to finish unless it's just amazingly good. Like unless it's in like top tier stuff, like I, otherwise I'll read a couple hundred pages and then I'll put it down and I'll come back to it whenever I feel like it. And it's not because it's bad. It's just cause I literally have an attention span of a fly. Um, and I, and I read what I, I want to think about. Does that make sense? So no, like, that's kind of what I do. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're fine. It's just this idea of, you know, when, some like, cause I'm also like, I, I write for fun and I write fiction and stuff like that. And sometimes like, you know, if I want to write fantasy, like I'm like, Oh, okay. Well I want to go read fantasy. Like I want to find good model text for what I want to do. Um, like I've been toying with like when I read YA or middle grade books, I'm reading those primarily either for, to find good books for students that need a book or I'm reading them because I I, I want to write a book for young people one day, and that's kind of like sometimes I'm looking for model text that way. But if I read professional books, um, that's risky for me because I'm a verbal processor. So if I'm reading something good, like this has happened recently, like I picked up a Lin, uh, a Linda Reef book, and I was just kind of reading through it because I thought about something. For Something made me pick it up. I don't remember what. And I started reading, and she was kind of laying out this really great – these really great points about why kids should read and write in unison and stuff like that. And so when I was talking to my students, I started verbally processing the stuff that I had read. And I was like, I'm taking up so much time talking about this right now because I'm processing this information and I want to talk to someone about it. And they're the only people I have right here. So I, that runs the risk for me a little bit when I'm <laughs> diving into professional development books. But yeah, I, you know, that reading time, uh, it's so valuable. How... You know, over the years, how has your reading time that you've given kids fluctuated? That's one question I get a lot is, you know, they ask, you know, how much time do you let kids independently read? And, you know, the subtext of that conversation of that question is like, you know, hoping like how much time can I get away with? Because this is, quote unquote, the non teaching part of our classrooms. Right. This is what admins when they come around, they don't want to see kids reading unless you have a really good in the know admin. So um, for you, how has that time fluctuated and where do you sit now? Well, I'll be honest when. I, uh, I'm a, I'm a reading trainer, believe it or not. And, uh, as well as a writing trainer. And I had to do all this research on, you know, Frank Smith and all this stuff on, on reading. And of course they, they felt like, uh, that's where I learned that it's important that they read and read a long period of time. Uh, cause you want longevity. A lot of times the kids don't have the stamina. And so you really want them, you want them to build that stamina, and uh, so with that, there was a, a time where it was very, it was acceptable for the kid, for the reading, like the one I was talking about. I would, I would have, what I would do is we would go to the library about every other week. And I always made sure it was like a Monday or a Friday, usually a Monday because I had three children, a sick husband, and I did all that other stuff. So yeah. if it was on Monday, I could at least have them write and I could have them read and I could like take a, 
take a breath. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 that was always planned. So that's usually what I would do. And then that way, and it would be, just became a habit. And so I would let the kids read anywhere from 20 minutes to 45 minutes. And they would read the whole time. They would beg me to read. Can we have another day like this? Uh, it was very relaxing. And it, and I'd put a little music on, you know, just nice, a little soft music. Uh, right now, my kids today, they love all those Disney piano music. So that's what they always ask for. But anyway, so they liked it. Like they liked that calming. So that's what we would do. We would write. I would do the same thing with writing, but I did the same thing with reading and we'd read, read. So every other week, every two weeks, we would go to the library. I always made sure my, I'd always get in there early and make sure my library day was on Monday. And right. so um, I would take the kids to the library. And at that time, my teacher, she didn't have everything genre-fied. You know, you and I talked about it. I mean, it was genreified by the Dewey system, don't get me wrong. But fiction was just a conglomeration of fiction. It wasn't it wasn't genreified by science fiction, historical fiction. It was just fiction. And so I taught the students about the versa and things like that on how they could tell. So whatever I was modeling in the classroom, and I did a three book classroom. Let's still do that. I try to do that. But a three book classroom and whatever we were doing at that time, I would tell the students, you can have one book of your choice. I don't care what it is. I really didn't care. It could be a book about drawing. It could be a book. I mean, I don't, anything they're interested in, it didn't matter. But then um, there was always one book because we could only do two at the time. And the other book was whatever genre we were studying, but I'd, I, that's the one that I would let them read for the full time. And we would have library reading time. And that day we would just, they'd get their books and we would sit in the library and we would just read. And uh, that's what we did. The librarian loved it. But I noticed that because you, you asked me how it's changed over time. Well, I think last week I told you I missed my grade book. Well, I miss, <laughs> sometimes I miss, I miss the time when I had that autonomy. Mm-hmm. They, they have taken a lot of autonomy away from us by making sure that we don't have um, variation in our teaching because they want everybody to have the same thing like from classroom to classroom. I understand the logic behind that, but, but if there's, if you're working with a team that doesn't, and that's not about my team now, it's just, I've worked on with several teams throughout the years. But if you're working with people that don't have the same understanding about reading that you do, right, and they feel like that reading is not teaching, then you're and you have to do what they're doing, then you're you're kind of stuck not being able to do that long reading time. And I felt like that long reading time was very beneficial. I so. I have a question. Uh huh. That I thought of while you were kind of talking there, which is this idea of losing this autonomy and you know you've one of the reasons why i enjoy forcing you to talk to me for an hour on a podcast all the time is <laughs> and right. and why honestly i i really enjoyed sharing an office when we did for that year is because you have this breadth of experience and knowledge and uh just this vast like landscape inside of your brain that is really fun to kind of pick point. And <laughs> once I get you going, it's really fun to kind of just hop along and learn as you talk. Okay. And, and, and I'm curious at your, your outlook on this, because this is something that I think 
teachers are aware of, but younger teachers like me not might not understand uh, how how times have changed and whether that's for the better or not, which is this idea of teacher autonomy and, you know, wanting everything to be kind of all together. Because in my brain, I want to tell you how I think about this and you can correct me or confirm, which is, see, in my head, like I've always thought of like old school education as really kind of almost factory mindset. Like most people kind of knew where they were going to go in life. You just wanted to kind of create kids who did what they were supposed to, were literate, were able to do this or that, do arithmetic, and they can go off into the workforce. And that was it. So in my head, the farther you go back in education, the more streamlined it is. And then in my brain, it it, it looked... I, the way I think about it is we're getting more open, but sometimes when like when what you said, it sounded like you it's almost like it's opposite um, mm-hmm. to where teachers don't have as much freedom and everything is much more well, you need to do this because we need we need standardized results because that's what's being that is what's being used to determine whether we're doing our jobs correctly or not. So to put that into a question, it is that correct? Is it has it been a more of a clampdown, or is it is it a more gray area that you've seen to where it's kind of more free, but it's also more standardized? Well, um, going to school when I in the eighties, of course, you know that's why I went to school in the seventies and the eighties mm-hmm. as a student, and um, yeah, we were all in rows all the time. You just sat in your rows. I mean, right. that's how it was, and I didn't have any experiences. I didn't have reading experiences. We just, well, my reading experiences were out of the, out of the canon or the, um, you know, our, whatever our English book was, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of, uh, so that, and, and then we did a lot of grammar stuff like that. So everything was taught in isolation. Um, I did, I was not taught how to write, to be honest. I was, I taught how, I was taught how to type and make sure that my margins were right. I do remember that. And I had to make sure that, you know, so I think my writing was very dry. But no, no focus on craft or anything. No, not, no, unless you were in, if you were smart enough or you had the open schedule, I was an athlete and stuff. So I didn't have the schedule to, to choose, but if you were selected, you could be in, um, what is it? Creative writing class. Yeah. As an elective, Mm -hmm. but my electives were taken by your typical traditional electives. So I think there you could do that. Uh, So, yeah, I think, I think there was a factory model, but then all that writing research came out and I was just fortunate to be a part of that. So in, and I worked in one district that, so uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. So you yeah, did not to interrupt you. I'm just trying to set no, the you're landscape, good. and this is good for people who might not have gone down the rabbit hole of kind of the origin of some the what we're talking about. You know, there's there's origin stories, and there's there's a legacy system involved in what mm-hmm. we're talking about. So you were in school in when, when did you graduate? Eighty three. So 83. So if I'm not mistaken, Don Graves and Lucy Calkins and all them, they were doing that research late. Was it late 80s or late 70s? They were doing it in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And so you were kind of on right at the edge. So by the time you were becoming an educator, that was really when maybe some of this stuff was propagating, right? 
Right. And also when I, I did not have a standardized test that I had to take, we had like a Iowa basic skills test, but there was nothing there that was high stakes. So the high stakes testing um, phenomenon or whatever you want to call it had not come into play. However, my parents were teachers and I do remember that my dad had to take an English test and he's a math teacher. I remember them being very angry about that. And that was probably right at while I was in college. And my brother, who's four years behind me, he had to take the first test. That was a you know, that was a high stakes standardized test. So I think what happened, so that research came out and I had the research, I I was told to take the, you know, study the research if they were wanting to hire me. Uh, That was in 92, 93. So about 10 years later, that's when all this came to our area at least my knowledge of it. And, uh, and so I was, so at that time, the group of people that I worked with, my administrators that I worked with at that time were on board with like, like you could not become a teacher in our district if you had not been trained Mm. in this process. And so because of that, they, the principals, as a matter of fact, Jacob, I've trained almost every every middle school and high school principal uh, because of that, you know, mm-hmm. their curiosity. So, um, so anyway, but with that said, you could, you could as a principal in our district say, Nope, we're not going to hire you if you're not going to take this three week mm-hmm. summer course. That's kind of gone away. So to me, that's not really autonomy, I guess, but yeah, the system or the philosophy provides choice and, it's student centered, right? Yeah. But I think what's happened is over time, uh, some teachers would go, Oh, I just love this particular topic, or I love this type of um, unit. And so, what happened over time is teachers would teach units that they love and they would get away from the standard. And the problem is with the test. You, the schools were being held at a higher standard. So when the schools started, in at least in the state of Texas, started becoming held at a higher standard, and when they they did, I think a study in, I think it was in '94, I could be wrong, might be '93, '94, where they actually studied um, our schools in the United States, and they felt like we were going in the negative direction. Um, that's when I think there was a lot of pressure on high stakes testing, more pressure on schools. And as a result, then from that pressure, they started telling us not, you know, like how long can you do reading? How long? And that's when I started getting the pressure that letting the kids read isn't enough. And you needed to do the guided reading. You had to do this. You had to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was just they tell you when to do it now in your lesson sometimes, and they script your lesson for you. So the autonomy I'm talking about is I take the research that I've learned, and I put it in the order that makes sense to me so that it runs smoothly in my classroom. Well, and my – so anyone who – has followed me at all knows that I really love the Ron Clark Academy and it's not oh, because yeah. of their flashy stuff. It's because Ron and Kim 
um, the way they run that school and the way they hire teachers and the way they treat their teachers, um, at least from the outside, you know, obviously I don't work there. I'm not employed by Ron Clark. I've given them tons of free advertisement, but I have no affiliation (laughs) whatsoever other than really thinking that that is one way to really run a fantastic school. Um, but talking to their teachers, for example, Corey Collins, who um, I had on the Teaching Teacher podcast, he he does reading workshop, and he was he said when he got hired, he was incredibly nervous because he was like, the primary thing I do is let kids read. They choose their mm-hmm. books, we read. And, you know, I was really nervous because, you know, Ron Clark, you know, they're known because kids are dancing and Ron is like the Energizer Bunny. Anyone who's ever seen him teach or seen videos, I mean, the dude has more energy than anyone on the face of the earth. Um, but uh, that that brings a lot of pressure to some of their teachers. But here's the thing. Corey kind of was like, hey, this is how I teach. This is, uh, you know, kids read. So you walk into my room, you know, I'm probably not going to be blaring music or jumping up and down on a table and kids probably won't be doing any of this. They'll be reading and talking about the, what they're reading and stuff like that. And they were like, yes, love it. Awesome. Go. And so as a school, they respect that you can be stellar at what you do and still do what is and, and still be next level, which is, I mean, that school is designed for teachers to come and learn and be, to, to watch stuff that is in a, in an idyllic situation. You know, they don't have, um, the amount of kids we do, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that make it not a typical setting, but, um, it's not designed that way. It's designed to say, Hey, this is what's possible. How can you translate any of this into your classroom? And I think that is to go to your point, I think that is what leadership honestly should be. You know, I know we have this weird pressure and I think about this a lot because I do want to either start a school or run a school one day. And I I think about this in the sense of like empowering educators to, to own their research and to walk into the classroom as if it's their practice, right? It's their, it's Mm -hmm. them. They got their, they got their degree and this is your practice. So work through it and back up what you say. And I'm going to come watch and I'm going to come give constructive criticism, but it has nothing to do with, Hey, be Chastain or do what I want you to do. It's, I need you to justify why you're letting kids do such and such. And this is any subject, but you know, in literacy, like having, you know, I, I, you know, I, when I started letting kids read in my room, it was primarily based off Donald and Miller and the book whisper, but I didn't really know the research behind it. You know, I didn't have the information as to why kids independently reading would be, would be beneficial to my academics. And it took me a long time. And honestly, the pressure I had, over time to kind of justify that, which ultimately led to craft and draft with you. But even mm-hmm. before that, it was the, it was the pressure of like, man, they're going to not let me let kids read. If I do not start learning why this is good, if I don't start showing them why kids reading is valuable, why it's beneficial. And quite honestly, I, I think it started off with, well, if kids can't read for 15 minutes at bare minimum, they're never going to take a four hour standardized test. Like that was right. my, that was like my first argument. And then eventually it became a lot more detailed than that. But, you know, I think to understand not only why you do like getting great lessons is great. And I think this is the big problem with teachers pay teachers is, you know, a lot of those, I don't, I don't bash any teacher for really finding resources that you need. 
But what I think we need more of is teachers looking at themselves as professionals. And I know that's hard because we have administration and district officials and stuff that don't do that. But if teachers don't hold themselves to this professional level, then I don't know who will. And I think that starts with like being insanely curious, reading PD books during reading time. And like, <laughs> I mean, you bought a PD book right before we went live I today. Did. <laughs> I did. You shared it with me and I've already got it and I've already read. And you're like, are you reading that while we're talking? Yeah, right. I've already got it. I'm on page page. 10 already. But that's like what professionals do. Like we don't, we don't rest Mm -hmm. on our laurels and you know, you've like, you've been teaching for a lot longer than I have, but you still, you're so open to anything new. Like anytime, like on the few occasions, like we might disagree, like we'll sit there and talk about something and then we both walk away with more information. But like, that's, I feel like that's rare. Like this attitude of teacher as professional in the teacher community is kind of rare. It's like, oh, you get a degree and then you go work and hopefully someone gives you curriculum and lessons. And if they don't, then you'll just change districts and find a place that will give you what you need. And I, right. I feel like to be well, the teacher at the caliber we're talking about, we we can't do that. No, you have to you have to be a studier of of your craft and your your art, your pedagogy. And the thing is you're right. There there was a time, I mean, there was a group of us at in our district, and many of them have passed on, I actually, and because um, I've been in for a while, but they they allowed us to try new things and to do stuff. So there was a moment in time where we got to do all of that. But you know, you change administrators, they all have different attitudes and different things. But I do feel at t- that Okay, I'll just go back. We used to train 42 for for a summer. It was a 15-day institute, just as an example, 15-day institute about how to teach writing. Okay? The reading was just a week because most of the philosophy was done in uh, about how student-led learning, if you will, student-centered learning. Mm-hmm. Most of that was in that 15 day week. So the reading was like an addendum to that. But anyway, that's four weeks in the summer. And we were running as a trainer, we were running in our district alone, 40 teachers, a session, two sessions, a summer. That's what we were doing. Wow. And we did that for all throughout the nineties. It was about 2001 and we had a change in our um, administration, and I'm talking about superintendents, not the one we have today. It was a different one, and everybody changed. People retired, and with them, what retire? You know, what retires is their the attitudes. Does that make sense? Yep. And the philosophy, and so, I mean, it came to almost a screeching halt, and they quit. Uh, they quit. Um, uh, money had a lot to do with it. We used to run that off of, of uh, I think, an Eisenhower grant that no longer is available to people. And so there's kinds of things, uh, rules change in the, in the legislation, uh, stuff like that, that does not provide money for those types of things. And so it just, boom. So what I've noticed uh, is, because, you know, I became a literacy coach, as you know, or an academic coach, whatever you want to call it, 
And what I've noticed is it, it is difficult to get the teachers. Oh, I don't have time, that kind of time. That's my summertime. That's my. And so I do see that there is a difference in that little group that I was with, if you will, which is probably why I have what I have versus the group that's now. Now, nothing wrong with the people. I mean, I love all of them, but the. And they they put their money or not their money but their time into things, but it's just not it's just not the same. I, there is a difference. Yeah, and well, it's just I don't I, I don't want to say commitment, but I think we are living in a time where what people are having like five different jobs, yeah, or careers during their mm-hmm. their lifespan. Yeah, and and I've been at this for thirty four years, so you're looking at an old way of thinking. Well, as far as and. In all honesty, I mean, I'm that generation, right? I'm the generation that has five to seven careers before they're <laughs> before they're done. Like that's my crew. They're they're my people, and right. I understand that. And honestly, like I'm kind of like even among my friends, like I'm the outlier um, that I mm-hmm. kind of worked my way up, did what I needed to do with kind of jobs here and there, but. Like I only, I've only had four jobs in my life, maybe five, I'd have to count, but four or five and teaching was my last one. And it's going like education is, is my happy place. Like, unless I write some Mm -hmm. fiction book that takes off, like it's always, but even then, like, I think I would still try to find a way to wedge myself kind of like Jeff Anderson. Like he writes fiction for kids, but he still does what he does. Right. Right. Um, Same thing for Ralph Fletcher and all them. But, um, this that is I mean that's a really interesting point to where you know and I I've I've uh helped hire teachers who some of them I can tell are lifers like they're people who are insanely dedicated like um this last year as a department chair you know I kind of had to rehire the majority of my ELA team we had like half the members gone so I had to hire a bunch of people and I talked to a lot of educators so just talking to a lot of teachers I could tell who was a teacher because they were kind of obsessed with this and really into the practice. And I could tell the people who just do it because they like it or because, you know, it's, it's a pretty good job. You get relatively good benefits. Depends on your state. But here in Texas, I feel like we get paid pretty well, um, mm-hmm. at least in kind of the major cities. And, you know, we get fairly quality benefits. They change year to year. But, you know, I'm, I, I've made a pretty good life living on what we're currently being given. Right. Um, but like I hire, like I'll hire one teacher who is phenomenal, has, was Abydos trained, which is the primary reason I wanted to hire her. And she's, I mean, she is so dedicated to her craft. She's dedicated to getting better. She's dedicated to learning and she can cite the major research. She might not know all of it, mm-hmm. right? The same way my, well, you might, but the majority of us don't know all the research, but like we can't, uh, uh, you know, the, just coming across a teacher who can cite the research behind what they're doing is incredibly rare these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone who jumps out and talks about like Jean Piaget, like how he affected like what, we do in the classroom today or any of those people that we kind of give homage to. Like I'm always shocked when people talk about workshop and graves and, uh, Calkins and Atwell and all of them never even come up. 
right? Like that's flabbergasting to me. Like when I talk to older, especially older educators who have been doing it for, you know, maybe five, 10, 15 years. And they don't, they don't mention Donald Miller, Kittle, Gallagher, any of those guys. Like Mm -hmm. these are, these are your Titans in your field. Right. And there's, there's a bunch more, like I'm just hitting the highlights here, but there's tons of these guys. And I feel like, I feel like education, it's almost like a, you know, the only two examples I have are like Buddhist monk, uh, dynasties and kind of like Catholic dynasties, right? Where you kind of know the origin. Like, you know, my mm-hmm. my master was stopped by this master who was stopped by this master who was right. stopped by this master. And that, right. I feel like that, I don't know, I don't know if we can, I mean, you could definitely attribute some of it to the age thing. But I think the reason I, I, I think the age thing doesn't matter to me so much. Like why my, like me being a millennial, I'm not really interested in that because I'm so fascinated with the the process of teaching and how a lot of the stuff that like I find out that works, I trace the origin. I'm like, holy crap, they knew this worked in like the 70s. And I'm just now figuring mm-hmm. it out. And I'm I'm having to advocate it in 2020 to a group of educators. And that's that's wild to me. I don't know. I here's the thing. I found the stuff that I'm finding out that works the best isn't mm-hmm. the flashy stuff, which is the stuff that really got me no notoriety, right? Like in like the district, like people started, I mean, people loosely started like knowing who I was and stuff because I did big flashy lessons. I did classroom transformations. I did, you know, I was loud and fun and energetic and that's, I, I got, people started knowing who I was because I had results, but I was also kind of this fun teacher. But the more I teach and the more I evolve, the more I move away from that stuff. Not because I don't like it. I love doing huge lessons and I love creating experiences for kids, but I also love research and I love what actually works for kids. And when it comes down to it, like kids having reading time, kids having a quiet time to read books that they're interested in to Mm -hmm. text that they're interested in, to dive and have time to get immersed in what it's like to read a novel. You know, I think about like when my family was kind of falling apart as a kid, there was times when like I'd be home for hours, like by myself. Right. And this was kind of before cell phones. So I didn't really have, uh, cell phone games or anything like that. Like, I, I mean, there were cell phones existed, but they weren't what they are today. And I, I had game systems, but you know, I was just kind of whatever. And I just remember like sitting down and reading, like for, I have a clear memory of coming home from school and reading book two of the Aragon series called eldest. It's this dragon series. And I remember I read it for hours. I mean, just hours into the night. And I remember the sun going down and I was like, Oh, I guess my mom's not coming home tonight. So I just like kept reading uh-huh. this book. Right. And like, I, I, I just kind of made some ramen on the stove that I kept reading. And I finished like, I read like 300 pages and I finished the book. And I remember like getting chills reading this book because the ending was so good. And that was what a really strong memory, but like that it's hard to teach kids like to love literature that way. If they're only reading passages and stuff that you print off the internet to hand them that can be consumed in a tight five, 10, 15 minute session, like kids need time to be immersed in literature. Cause that's the only way you know what it's like to live inside a novel. It's the only way. Well, that's true. And one of the things when going back to your autonomy thing is we used to be able to choose 
a little more freely the type of um, novels. I mean, from the canon maybe, or from what an approved list, but but still, we got to say, I want to teach this or I want to teach that. And uh, and we would teach whole novels to the students. And anyway, I just I just feel like there's a, there was a push there probably, uh, I would say, 20, 2008, right in that time period. And it was a push that, well, we're not letting the kids, and, and I see the logic a little bit into that, and that is we're not allowing the kids to explore enough literature. So, so we need to do more. And so they, what they would do is force us to teach a novel in three I mean, just a few weeks or a few days where they would they would shrink the novel and do a little novel pack and make us, okay, so then we were getting through several novels, but most of that turned out to me telling these kids what the novel was about. Well, that's not, I'm doing the reading, and but to get through with my team, that's what we had to do. And so I just find, you know, and, and but I could get a lot of bang out of my, you know, teaching the kids how to read, if I could slow down and go through a novel and stop and talk to them about it, but then at the same time, let them read their own work and then provide generalized questions, which I typically got from Laura Robb, by the way, and uh, Kylene Beers. Those were my two main um, questioners, you know, that where I would get my questions and... right. And to talk to students, but anyway, uh, from that, I would I would have big, huge, open questions that would include all of the books. You know, like what was something specific that your author did that helps you understand your reading today? Well, everybody can answer that if they were all reading, but it was broad enough that I could tell that they were reading. And then I would model for them with smaller books, like trade books, picture books, on what I want them to do. I would read to them and then show them a little bit. Then I would then we would look at it in the big novel, and then they would find it in their own own uh, literature that they were reading. So that's what we used to do, and I I want to do that now. And what what's stopping me is my question, and I think it's uh, the pressure that I have to stay in line with everybody else and doing exactly like, well, we can't teach a full novel because we got to get through da, 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 da. So I have a hard time with that, honestly. And that's, that's such a precarious like place to be. And I think it's the place that a lot of teachers are, you know, I, for years, I was seen as, the rebellious teacher. I mean, even to where I heard rumors that a district official quite literally told another principal like, Oh wow. You do with Jacob. And I hear he's extremely rebellious. Like that is something. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) well, what's, I mean, it's not wrong, first of all, but it's also the funny part is to me is my rebelliousness was never because I want to rebel against the norm and kind of do something, which is what I think rebellion is. I think a lot of rebellion is kind of, I don't know. I'm arguing against myself in my brain now, so I guess I'll stop that line of thought. But, I mean, if you think about what rebellion is, I mean, it's, it's standing up for what you think is right in the face of something or someone telling you that something else is correct, right? 
And I knew that when I started letting kids read in my room, even though my academic coach and my principal and pretty much everyone else would walk in, I'm like, oh, you're having kids read for this amount of time. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. No, we're still getting work done, but we're reading, right? Like I had to kind of qualify it. And that transitioned into me reading even longer. And they were like, well, why are you letting kids? That's that's too much time. You need to be doing this, this, and this. I'm like, hey, well, my scores are good. And that kept them off my back a little bit, right? Because I was still able to kind of maintain well, I wanna, scores. I'm going to interrupt you. I want to argue that your scores were good because you allowed your students to read. And well, and through that, they became better readers. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And that's what I think was happening. I couldn't mm-hmm. prove that, though, because I had no system. I had no... I, I couldn't point back to the reading, right? Because they were still right. doing, like at this time, at this era, my second, third year is what I'm really talking about. Uh, I was still relatively following curriculum and I was still using what we would consider kind of stock stuff. Like I was still using a lot of the textbook. I was using just kind of, you know, your standard passages, you know, I was reading stuff in the curriculum and stuff like that. And not that I'm bashing anything like that. I mean, I'm a curriculum writer in the district, so I'm not bashing the stuff that goes into the creating of these resources for teachers. However, um, I was still following a lot of that. So a lot of, I feel like a lot of them were doing that and it wasn't until I started, it wasn't until a little bit later when like, I was like, I have my research and I know what this means and I know that I should let kids write and I should let kids read and I should talk to them about their reading and writing. And my, my class started transforming into what we call workshop that it was, it was so fun to talk to other people because I was like, oh yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, my kids are going to read this or like, I'm just going to use like the, the big thing was, you know, teachers go, oh my God, you're not going to read a full short story. And I'm like, oh, I will. But the majority of what I'm going to read are excerpts to kind of give them the tools they need. And then they're going to read their novels. It's like, we're going to read a short story, maybe two or three or something like that. And just breaking it up like that was so flabbergasting to a lot of people. And I eventually got to the point to where I I guess I felt comfortable enough to push back like that, or maybe I just didn't care. I don't know what it was, but (laughs) I was just like, I'm going to do this because I think it's right. And I'm confident in myself that if I start failing, I'm not going to stand up for something that's hurting kids. Like if my kids start doing poorly on everything academically, like I'm not going to keep doing it. And what happened was kids, they started learning and they started doing so much better and they started enjoying my class. And it wasn't because I was doing flashy lessons. Like it was because they came in and they were enjoying reading and writing because that's the culture I took time to build with them. Like to like this last, this group that I have this year, um, on our test, you know, we have approaches meets mastery, uh, Last year, my whole goal was to hit 50% mastery by the end of the year on any test. And I, the highest I ever hit was 45. And I was like, dang it. And then COVID hit and we had to go home. And then this year, the last test we took before Thanksgiving break, both of my in-person classes crossed over the 50% mastery rating. Oh, that's awesome. On informational, which is incredibly difficult for seventh grade students. And mm-hmm. I don't want to judge everything based on a test, but that is 
what's funny is nothing in my class is standardized. They're writing what they want. They're reading what they want. We talk about their reading and writing. I talk about what I'm reading and writing. And we do a mini lesson that's 10 to 15 minutes every single day, mostly every single day. And that's it. And that is, I mean, if you talk about going back to my second or third year, my class did not look like this at all. But the stuff I'm doing this year is stuff that, oh my God, if they, if districts, if the same people that were in charge were watching me teach now, they'd be having a heart attack because I'm not doing (laughs) practically anything that they recommend. But at the same time I am, I'm just doing it in different ways. Like they talk about, we need word work and, but I'm doing word work in context. You know what I mean? Like I'm kind of ranting at this point, but it's, it's the, it's knowing your research and sticking up for it. And then waiting for those results. I, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's what works for me, but no, I, and it, and you're right. Um, it, it's, it, you know, you mentioned the textbooks a second ago. That's another thing that, that, uh, we used to really use the textbooks a lot. You're right. And now we spend thousands of dollars. I mean, Millions. I don't know how many, how much oh, I'm textbooks. Sure I'm cost, sure it's in the but, millions. It has to be. But we spend millions of dollars on textbooks, and then everybody that they don't use them. Yeah. And I'm not that person either. I would use the textbook as you're talking about as a model. That would be like that's my my anchor text, and I didn't have to go find it, you know, because there were some good good stories. But I would use it that way. I'd use my picture books. But then, like I said, we would have, we might read a novel all together, and we would do different things depending on what the focus was, but the kids would read their own books. But it's just not the same. Uh, in the old days, when I worked at the high school, you just closed your room, and it was, it was a dog-eat-dog world, because you didn't share with each other. That was not allowed. Not that it wasn't allowed, it's just, it was more of a competition, to make sure that your kids could do better. So it's really interesting. To hone in, I think, on what you were saying here, which is this world of kind of collaborating with teachers with different levels of expertise, different levels of desire to get mm-hmm. expertise. Like I think that's a, a reality, and I advocate all the time for teachers to kind of be the professionals that they want to be treated as. You know, if we want to talk about professional pay, we have to act like professionals. Um, and I got that idea from kind of Ron Clark where he was like, you know, you have teachers complaining they don't get paid enough. They show up to work in sweatpants. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, I, that's a very crass yeah, way to true. put it. But I, I think that's I think the, the essence of what he's talking about is very factual. Um, I... I mean, this goes... What's funny is this all really does translate... You know, if people are still listening to us at this point, this does translate back to this idea of reading culture and what we try to do, which is, you know, I, I think best practice and and research-based practice and, and here and knowing what people talk about and what people disagree with, like there's probably stuff that we've said on here that you might disagree with, but knowing that we are backing it up by a series of... Uh, experiences in a series of Could you try again? My phone's talking to me. Oh, it's because I said Siri, so it said Siri. That was funny. <laughs> Backing it up by, you know, a, a conglomerate of <laughs> of of research. Like you can disagree with research and disagree with that, but you need to be able to kind of justify where you're coming from. And that is 
I think the I think that's what separates teachers who teach because they like kids and just really like the job and teachers who teach because they see it as a profession and a craft and a practice, which is justifying why you do something, pointing to research, pointing to other teachers that have kind of done it in a lineage and being like, well, this is what we're going to do. This is how you help non-readers become readers. You know, if you want kids to read beyond their lives, maybe, just maybe, don't teach them that reading is nothing but passage work and questions. Like, there's, right. there's, there's so much there that we, we have to be careful about what we do, but also be willing to take risks. Like, I, I mean... I don't know everything and I do stuff all the time that like I do stuff like even a few years ago where I'm like, ah, I wouldn't do that again, but I wouldn't have known unless I jumped out there and tried. And hopefully people are at a district and at a campus where they feel able to try different things. And, you know, even if they don't feel able to, they feel able to apologize, which is kind of where I was in the early years where mm-hmm. I didn't feel completely free, but I felt I was able to be like, ah, sorry, I didn't know any better. You know, <laughs> Right. But I mean, if you're in a place that I don't know, like if you're in a place that's a a strict scripted curriculum or is very negative about anything and they need everything lockstep and I don't know, I I would leave if a place like that, like I'm not telling anyone to leave their jobs because everyone has a different circumstance. But this just the idea of not being able to practice and change and evolve, it would stunt me entirely. I would it would kill me. Well, I will, I will say just uh, in defense of where, you know, I've been here for a long time in our district and it does change from school to school just a little bit, but as far as the district as a whole, I think they've always tried to allow uh, for us to learn and understand our pedagogy, you know what I mean? And improve it, to hone it. And um, I know that, but, but just like, you talked about results. Can you prove, can you get the results? And of course, I think that's why, again, coming back to why we decided to do this craft and draft is we needed to provide something for our teachers and for us when we were actually teaching teachers um, on a regular basis, a way for them to be able to do workshop and yet complete the standards, you know, follow the standards and meet the requirements of our, of our district. Uh, because our district is under scrutiny, right, from the state. And our state's under scrutiny with, our, with the United States, if you will. That's where we're at. But also with the world, right? So we're all under scrutiny. So we have to learn to um, put our kids first and work within the constraints that we have. And that's something that sometimes is hard to do. But um, like I said, it with my particular team, uh, we've had a, you know, we've had to figure out a way to work through that a little bit just because we all come from different backgrounds. But right now we we're kind of in a, in a flow in the, it seems so. And, but we do, we do believe in reading and we have a librarian that's very helpful. And actually we're taking turns and taking our classes down to the library. And we've worked out this system of where they're all separated and, one person can go get one book, and we've learned how to quarantine it and all that. So that's been uh, one of our one of our student uh, students, one of our the younger teachers uh, 
they jumped out there and said, well, I don't care if they say we can't go to the library. I'm going to talk to the teacher, and we're going to figure this out. And so they got permission, and so now we're going to be working through that this next time. So I'm looking forward to that. So it is good when uh, you have to step out a little bit, and it's helpful to the kids. But when it comes to reading, I say you have to read a lot. I think you have to, just like Nancy Atwell said, um, you have to provide time for them to read. They have to be able to own what they read, and you have to be able to guide them when they have trouble. And that's, to me, the, the, what you got to do. And I couldn't have said it any better myself. And we're at the end of this Craft the Draft episode, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that you had as much fun as we did. We went everywhere. This was really kind of a professional development episode. I don't know. But I guess we <laughs> talked about reading culture. We talked about something. If you enjoyed this hour-long conversation about workshop English teaching, about being a professional, do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episode. But then also... Leave a star rating, leave a written review, all those fun things. We have a lot of things planned for you. Thank you for listening to Craft and Draft. This is Pamela Show and Jacob Chastain. We are the creators of the Craft and Draft process, which we will. Uh, we're going to be talking about this process. It's coming out. We mention it as we go. It is very uh, precarious. This podcast is more or less kind of our thoughts and how we think about and how we approach our teaching. So if you are into that, if you want to nerd out for an hour every single week about workshop and what we're doing and what we're thinking and kind of exploring, then subscribe to the podcast. You will never miss an episode. But until then, ladies and gentlemen, know that we are here for you. <laughs>